Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm just curious how many of you, if any of you are what is called handy, because I have to say I am deeply not handy, which was fine when I lived in one of those soulless luxury apartment buildings with a maintenance portal. And now that I own a wonderful house with quote unquote character, which I think is just code word for hundred year old termites, termites, nope, termites. termites. We're going to keep that one. <laughs> it's a cross between termites and Kermit. Um, <laughs> it's very cute termites. Um, it's a problem. It's a problem. But you know, I don't know if you just tighten stuff enough, it usually works. I now own my, not my first, but my second 100-plus-year-old residence. Uh, not that I have them at the same time, but this is the second one I've owned sequentially. Uh, Scott is a, is a slumlord. I'm an old-timey landlord. I've got a monocle. I've got a top hat. It's a whole thing. 19th century vibe I'm going for. I have become more handy. I have done the most dead of things, which is that I have built multiple pieces of furniture in my house, wow. uh, rivaled only by Benjamin Wittes, who manufactured most of the furniture in his house, as far as I can tell. When you say you made the furniture, you don't mean you assembled it with several IKEA supplied Allen wrenches. You like actually I, I got I started with wood something. and I worked on from there. The the middle stages is assembling IKEA furniture with your own Allen wrenches. <laughs> yeah. It is like literally <laughs> just one step more complicated. <laughs> so it's really not that impressive. But yeah, I built a couple of uh, some shelves. I built some end tables. Uh I used to have a whole set of bookshelves and a desk I built out of some for some wood, uh, scrap wood and shelving um, in my old place. Um, but I did not make the transition to my new place. Do you so take I'm requests? Handy. I, I say I'm handy. If you pay for my time, yes. Could you build me a shelf? <laughs> my hourly rate has gotten ludicrous lately <laughs> <laughs> because I'm busy. But otherwise. Far outstripping his actual skill. Yeah. Eric, are you an exception to this rule of um, profound uselessness around the house? Oh, no. I'm profoundly useless. Nice. Absolutely. Nice. 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 I think you just have to own it. You know, the, pro- the problem is when you think you're more useful than you are. So my uncle is a contractor and I live mm, in fear dangerous. that one day he's going to like come and visit me and look at a shelf I put up and be like, it's crooked. And then I'll, I'll just have to live in shame. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. Thrilled to be back here in the IRL studio with my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And in the virtual studio with my third co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Second hello, co-host, hello. third host. <laughs> hello, hello. P- precise, Demoted. Which is our brand. Y- usually, usually you need to get to like seven before the counting problems start. This is just like right at two and three, man. I know. We're getting there. It's okay. It's late, it's late in the day. It's been a long day. But glad to have you, Alan. Uh, and we are thrilled to have a special guest with us this week, Lawfare Contributing Editor, a Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment just next door from us here at Brookings, Eric Charmella. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, we are really excited to have you in the building on what I think might be your Lawfare podcast debut. Am I remembering correctly? I did one with Ben on the okay. damn blast. So you've gotten the full Lawfare treatment then. Yes. Dog shirts. <laughs> Forget that guy. That's exactly. most of it, really, when you get down to it <laughs> yep. at that point. Dog shirts, Mostly dog more shirt dog related. shirts. More dog shirts. It's really a one-man a one brand. Um, well, there are no dog shirts here. We're dressed like adults. But in spite of that, we, <laughs> our conversation may go into some more adult and less adult domains. That sounds... 
Yeah, that makes it sound it, weird. It sounds weirder than I intended it to. Well, regardless, we're thrilled to have you here um, because we've had a couple things going on in the news this week, a few which are very much up your alley as someone who worked for a long time in Russia and Ukrainian affairs and the U.S. government in different capacities. And we're thrilled to have you here to talk about it and what we are calling the Mutiny in the Kitchen edition in honor of everyone's favorite chef, second favorite chef after the Swedish chef, of course, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Um, but let me not get ahead of myself. Let me run through our topics and the top three topics we're going to talk about this week in this week's episode. Topic one, going all Prigozhin. Prigoz, parenthetical in, going all in. You get it. Ye- Ye- it, Ye- work, Ye- it works better on the page. It works better on the page. Most of these do. Yevgeny Prigozhin, leader of the mercenary Wagner group, went all in this past week, marching his troops into Russia and halfway to Moscow for the stated purpose of removing Russia's military leadership, only to abruptly halt and accept exile in Belarus instead what should we make of these developments? What do they mean for Putin and for the future of the Ukraine conflict? Topic two, lost at sea. In a busy week of news, one story has gotten surprisingly little attention. The tragic sinking of an overcrowded smuggler's boat off the coast of Greece that claimed the lives of hundreds of migrants. What does this incident tell us about the dynamics of the migrant crisis in the Mediterranean and how the world views it? And topic three, more, more, more. How do you like it? The classic Disco song. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the Supreme Court issued decisions in three major cases this past week, including addre- one addressing the much-discussed independent state legislature doctrine in Moore v. Harper. What did the court decide and what will these decisions mean? To get us started on our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you. So I don't even know how to begin describing this, to be completely honest. I'm going to attempt walking through the timeline, but this is just a zoo. So at some point... <laughs> <laughs> on Friday afternoon, East Coast time, we all encountered a very strange video from Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, the hot dog salesman come catering magnate come warlord, I guess, um, who is runs the Wagner Group, the paramilitary organization that is playing an important role in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Prigozhin has long been in a fight with uh, Sergei Shoigu, the Russian Minister of Defense. And in this video, he essentially he accused the Russian Ministry of Defense of bombing Wagner troops and said that he was uh, going to take up arms against the ministry. Quickly, uh, Wagner troops, it seems, seized control of uh, Rostov-on-Don, which is a Russian city not too far from the Ukrainian border and is also uh, where a major Russian military headquarters is located. Wagner then began to uh, march on Moscow and I believe were less than 200 miles away when they suddenly announced, when Prigozhin suddenly announced that they were turning around and he would be uh, headed for a holiday in Belarus. Uh, So all of this is simply incredibly bizarre. Uh, from beginning to end. Um, and Eric, I am so glad that you are here because I am just deeply confused. So first off, tell me if anything that I said is wrong because the facts are changing very fast. And second off, what the hell is happening? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, you you did a great laydown of, of the events as we understand them. I am also asking myself similar questions as are all, you know, experts on this region of what the heck happened and what was this guy really thinking? How did he think this would end? Um, there was a, an interesting Wall Street Journal article today that claimed that Prigozhin and his forces had expected to capture Shoigu and Gerasimov when they were uh, doing a short trip to Rostov. Gerasimov being uh, the chief of the general staff. So he's the head of the uniform military, whereas 
uh, Shoigu is the civilian defense minister. And so apparently, according to this Wall Street Journal article, the FSB found out about this and warned Garasimov and Shoigu, and so they weren't there. And then it put Prigozhin's plans into motion faster than perhaps he had wanted uh, to put them in motion. And then we ended up in this extremely bizarre situation where – uh, you know, his tanks were idling on the outskirts of Moscow, and he seemed to have no plan about what to do next. So this was a, not a very well thought out plan. Uh, it was, you know, the profound miscalculation of, you know, a deeply delusional person who felt that he was untouchable because of his mercenary groups, you know, exploits uh, in Bakhmut and elsewhere, that he had, you know, this kind of privileged relationship to Putin and that he could flex his muscle and kind of force Putin to, I think, sort of deputize him and have him take over sort of the military-industrial complex, um, you know, because he believed falsely that he had a significant amount of support uh, within the regular military. And as we saw, you know, although there was minimal resistance from uh, the regular military, you know, it didn't rise up and back Prigozhin's mutiny. So that strikes me as... A big question here is to say, what didn't go Prigozhin's way? Because in a lot of ways, frankly, everything seemed to be going exactly, if, if not way better than one would have expected somebody who's driving to Moscow with somewhere between ten and 25,000, depending on who you believe, troops in tow, um, shooting down successfully Russian aircraft, uh, at least according to the Telegram channels that Wagner and other people have done, although I don't know if that's been independently confirmed yet. But able to proceed relatively deep into Russia before deciding to turn around. I know the Wall, with the Wall Street – no, I think the New York Times today had an article suggesting that uh, one other major figure in the Russian military might have had some advance notice and perhaps Bregozin was expecting his support and then it didn't manifest at the last minute. You know, what do you make of that? What what appeared to suddenly not go Bregozin's way that would cause him to, to switch trajectory? The only outward symbol we have that we know of right now is Putin very clearly issuing a statement – backing, you know, the Shoigu and other people in kind of the status quo military arrangements. But even his statement early on was a little more wishy-washy, it seemed to me. Um, so I'm curious where you think, what was the change of trajectory? What do we account that to? I mean, again, I, I think, you know, it's hard to apply some particular rational logic onto this. Prigozhin seems to have expected that he would kind of put this thing into motion and then somehow magically you know, Putin would recognize that he was right and then make this switch and Prigozhin would be vindicated without him having to kind of march all the way. I really don't think he had the intention of, you know, storming into Red Square and, you know, changing, certainly not the government. I mean, this was not a coup attempt in a traditional sense because he wasn't trying to unseat Putin. But certainly I think he expected, you know, somehow he expected Putin to fold. And then when Putin issued that very angry, you know, speech uh, that night about, you know, traitors and this was 1917 all over again. It seems to have caught Prigozhin off guard and then he sort of kept going but realized uh, that, you know, he wasn't going to be able to take this to its logical conclusion to the extent that there is a logical conclusion to it. But of course, Putin didn't take it to his logical conclusion either, which is, I think, sort of more surprising, right? I mean, we're talking right now about why Prigozhin did not succeed and um, I think it's sort of understandable that he didn't, and the odds were always stacked against him. What I find, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about this, Eric, since you know you've studied the the inner dynamics of the Russian government for a long time. 
is why Putin ultimately pulled his punch so dramatically in punishing Prigozhin. I mean, you don't, if you know, if you're an autocrat and you get out there and you talk about how this is the return of 1917 and the potential collapse of the Russian state and the you know rise of the Bolsheviks, you call this person a traitor, and then a few hours later you say, "Oh, no big deal. You can go to you can go to Minsk." And, uh, you know, your, your soldiers who weren't part of this can join us and the soldiers who were part of this, ah, that's okay. It just makes you look so weak. You know, what, what, whatever happened to Putin's, um, uh, much discussed bloody mindedness? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think Putin's in a, in a serious bind at this point. Um, you know, he can't completely kind of crush Wagner. First of all, he couldn't over the weekend. I mean, it would have led to, you know, significant bloodshed that I think would have posed even more serious problems for the regime. Um, so the fact that this deal was able to come together and, you know, Lukashenko talked Prigozhin off the cliff, I think for in Putin's mind, you know, it spared him from having to go down a path that would have been more destabilizing. But, you know, he's in a bind because Prigozhin's march was, you know, I said earlier the result of the delusions of one man, but it was also informed by the very widely shared grievances from, you know, again, a significant combat force in Ukraine being Wagner, but also many, many members of the regular Russian military. Legitimate grievances about, in their view, the way the war has been prosecuted. And to be clear, this was not a, um, you know, rebellion over the war itself and sort of, a, you know, a disagreement, even though Prigozhin had voiced some you know, questions about Putin's rationale for the war. He wasn't voicing disagreement with the war itself. It was about how to do how to prosecute it more effectively. So I think Putin was in a bind in that he, you know, he needs to sideline Prigozhin without kind of delegitimizing the grievances of all of these tens of thousands of fighters and try to kind of slowly, gradually get them more integrated into the defense ministry structure. So I think he's in a bit of a, you know, balancing act over the next few weeks. We'll see under what circumstances Prigozhin reemerges in terms of, you know, whether he still has access to all the social media accounts and he can st still lob these, you know, flaming messages, uh, you know, into his into his forces to get them all riled up or whether he's significantly silenced. And then we'll see what happens with this kind of integration of Wagner into the MOD and whether they actually do hand over their heavy equipment. I think, frankly, the punishment that Putin is going to levy against Prigozhin is going to be at some point in the future once they've dealt with getting the bulk of Wagner forces integrated and then he can take care of Prigozhin as an individual. Yeah, I, I just wanted to, to kind of follow up on on this question of of Putin choosing the lesser of two evils in terms of destabilizing his situation. And, and what you said makes a lot of sense in terms of the short term. I just wonder if he has traded avoiding intense short-term destabilization for much longer-term destabilization in not responding as forcefully as he could have and not crushing this column of soldiers who are moving on to Moscow. Maybe in the short term, he has made his life a bit easier, but should, shouldn't we w w wonder if his veil of strongman czarist impenetrability has been punctured and that you know even if Prigozhin surfaces in a ditch somewhere in Belarus in the next few weeks or next month, Putin has still shown himself to be sort of a fundamentally fairly weak leader and therefore encouraging uh, more of these kinds of uh, attempted mutinies uh, or more seriously, um, something from within his own sort of uh, inner circle. 
I mean, again, I think it's hard to say. um, And there were these competing interests in terms of, you know, quashing the challenge to his regime, but at the same time recognizing that, you know, large parts of society saw the fighters, at least, you know, the mercenaries themselves as kind of part of the patriotic front. And so to have, you know, blasted them to smithereens on the outskirts of Moscow, I think it probably would have sent an even more complicated message through the system that would have been potentially even more destabilizing. But I don't know. I mean, you know, they're really Putin's really trying to kind of shape this narrative in the wake of it as this moment of national unity, um, you know, as he's the wise leader who avoided bloodshed. You know, again, it, I, I totally agree with you that this has exposed some real um, deficiencies, structural deficiencies in his regime. I mean, again, this isn't this isn't anything new. It's just a dramatic public display of things that we've known since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. And I think it makes it harder to for Russians to ignore these things and to talk around them. And it sort of forces the conversation in a more, you know, straightforward manner. But I think the commentary, you know, in the West has been a bit breathless that this is, you know, the beginning of the end of Putin and it's inevitable at this point and he's going to be out on the street. You know, I, I don't know. I think it's, again, I, I do think it is going to have some sort of long-term impact on degrading his sort of, you know, the regime's kind of, like you said, the era of invincibility and whatnot. But I don't think this is going to happen from point A to point B and be some, you know, linear projection from where we are now to the kind of the day when it's post-Putin era in Russia. I will say one of the most interesting reactions I think I saw to this was someone who who said, you know, who knew that uh, giving up uh, the state's monopoly on the legitimate use of force could potentially cause a, a problem, right? Like that there's a certain extent to which obviously this wasn't inevitable, but if you're relying extremely heavily on a group, you know, essentially a private army to prosecute a war, just just even describing that, like, of course, things are going to fall apart. Is there anything to that? Like, was this inevitable because of the way that the regime is set up? I think it's one of the many kind of self-defeating aspects of Putin's original miscalculation, which was to launch this war in the first place. Um, there's been so many kind of own goals that he's, you know, committed against himself, um, you know, to include creating a situation in which, you know, the Ukrainians have been armed with all this advanced weaponry that's now being used, you know, to kill and evict Russians from Ukrainian territory. Again, this wasn't a situation that he had prior to February of last year. And this is another area where he has kind of inadvertently, you know, weakened, like you said, the monopoly and the use of force. And the one thing that I will say that this does sort of reiterate about Putin's leadership is he tends to procrastinate when um, encountering these like significant challenges. And he hopes that kind of other people below him will sort these things out, whether they're interpersonal conflicts or kind of structural challenges with things like supply of the military and whatnot. And he lets these problems ripen to such a point that they reach, you know, um, you know, crisis. And so we always think of him as this kind of master strategist and tactician that can think 17 moves ahead. But actually, the guy just kind of thinks that he can float above the system and everything will resolve itself. And he seems to not fully grasp the, you know, deficiencies within his own system, many of which he created himself. 
Honestly, that what you're saying about procrastination sounds extremely relatable. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> well, let's go from Putin's future to Prigozhin's future. Um, cause I'm, that, I think, is one of the biggest question marks in this for me is that we've seen him over the last several years, particularly over the last year, establish a very big independent center of gravity. At least he seemed to perceive it as such, where he had at least enough troops to march as close to Moscow as he got and pose a credible enough threat to leverage some sort of compromise solution. Whereas if he were, you know, didn't have some substantial loyalty, that probably would not have been possible among this troop base. Of course, Wagner is an international presence. We know it's very active in Africa. It's very active in Syria, active in lots of other places. But it also is a product of the Russian state, something that Putin now openly acknowledges in ways that he didn't 72, 96 hours ago, um, right? Uh, and so we, there's, I think, to me, a big question mark saying, to what extent is Prigozhin going to be able to keep whatever, you know, independent army slash financial network slash global resources he has available? Can they stand independent of Putin? Or is that something that Putin can slowly throttle just as we're seeing him co-opt, you know, the Russian troops that are fighting in Ukraine? Is he going to be able to do something similar with the Wagner presences in other parts of the world. And that's particularly seems important for Prigozhin, given that right now he's stuck in Belarus. A lot of other parts of the world he tries to travel to, he's going to face legal problems um, because of conduct in Ukraine and elsewhere. Um, not true everywhere. There's lots of places in Africa, lots of places in Central Euro Euro Asia where he could probably travel. They don't extradite. They're not going to extradite him. Wagner is very active. But a lot of parts of the world, he's going to be off limits. Uh, and if Putin is also angry at him, then that really limits how you're able to operate unless you have a lot of resources behind you. Um, do we know anything about those networks, or is that all a big black box for us in terms of how Wagner is structured and how independently it can exist of Putin? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big uncertainty. Um, you know, Putin did make this claim that contrary to all of his prior denials, you know, the state has been financing Wagner to the tune of a billion dollars over the last year and, you know, given Prigozhin all these contracts to supply the military. And so the implication from Putin was, yeah, I can cut him off. I do think probably Prigozhin's time as sort of an independent actor of any political significance is mostly over. I think he could still be, you know, a spoiler and a thorn in the side of the regime, but not nearly to the level that he has been. I do think there are questions about kind of individual units uh, within Wagner and how they're going to perceive the, the takeover by the Ministry of Defense and other structures in the security services. Um, which obviously they've resisted for a long time. But that's going to be a priority for the Kremlin because they don't want to, you know, they need to co-opt these organizations. They don't want to lose, in particular, Wagner deployments and operations in Africa where, uh, you know, in many cases that is kind of the Russian presence and, you know, tool of the state that can be used to support, you know, pro-Russian authoritarian regimes to uh, gain access to key minerals and, and so on and so forth. So, Again, I think it's not going to be um, an easy endeavor by the Ministry of Defense to take over these structures, but it's going to be of a high priority in the coming weeks and months. So another question I had is is what effect this is going to have on how Russia is prosecuting the war going forward. Ellen, I know you have some thoughts on this. If you want to start and then Eric, I definitely want to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to me that besides the immediate question of whether or not the Russian military will successfully be able to integrate the Wagner troops and use them, continue to use them successfully uh, in the war. The, the broader question is, is, is whether Putin will change how he is prosecuting the war 
in response to the internal political pressure uh, and to the, just to be frank, embarrassment that this uh, aborted mutiny has caused. Um, my, my understanding from sort of the political science literature is that a very standard playbook for authoritarians when they experience internal challenges is to try to externalize them, um, which is to say to take even more aggressive foreign policy actions so as to both distract from their own personal issues, uh, but also to help rebuild their reputation for fearlessness, ruthlessness, and so on and so forth. And so my worry is that Putin might take even more bold, even more rash actions in Ukraine to show that he is still in command of the situation. I mean, even before Prigozhin began his march on Moscow, the the, the Russians, and now it seems pretty, uh, you know, pretty clear, blew up the um, Kalkovka Dam, which is a, a really unprecedented act of you know, brutality and savagery. You know, after Prigozhin, my mind, paranoid as it is, just immediately goes to the use of tactical nuclear weapons or some other you know, horrible escalation that I haven't. You know, even thought of. That's what I'm worried about. I'm, I'm curious, Eric. Do you do you think I'm think I'm over rotating on this? I mean, I I think it's a fair kind of assessment that you know when when Putin feels like things are not going well in Ukraine, you know, uh, the sort of follow on is to brutalize the Ukrainians even more. So I think that's that's sort of a fair assessment going forward, and the Ukrainians understand that. But, you know, any kind of specific escalation scenarios when we're talking about Zaporizhia nuclear power plant or these tactical nuclear weapons, I still don't think, you know, we're there in the sense that this is such a moment of regime instability and vulnerability that he would go to that length, given that it would have probably catastrophic ramifications for the Russian side, too. Again, I don't know. This is still my sort of Western logic and trying to you know, understand where his head is. There was some interesting, there's been this series of uh, really sort of outrageous articles by Russian academics who were once respected in the West and now have, you know, totally lost the plot where they've been arguing for a preemptive Russian nuclear strike on uh, Europe, um, thinking that, uh, you know, the United States would not respond if Russia nuked Poznan and, you know, we need to reinstill fear in the West because the West has lost fear of our nuclear, you know, arsenal and all this and so on and so forth. One interesting thing, if there were to be a silver lining in that very, very horrifying message is, you know, one of these a- academics, Sergei Karganov, said, you know, that the use of a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, of course, you know, should be totally ruled out because that would be completely self-defeating since this is our territory and why would we nuke ourselves? So, so again, if there, if there were to be some sort of upside of that, it does seem like, you know, the Russian chattering class understands that there would be significant negative ramifications for Russia itself were it to use a nuclear weapon anywhere in Ukraine, you know, certainly close to the troops. That's quite a logic pretzel. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of logic pretzels there. So the last question well, not, maybe not the last question. Last question I have. But one topic we should we should touch on before we break for this topic is what this means for the more on the ground, near term consequences in Ukraine for the counteroffensive that's ongoing. Um, we know Wagner has played a pretty central role in a lot of operations on the ground, but had withdrawn er, earlier this month, end of last month. Um, particularly, played a really central role in 
although perhaps somewhat exaggerated deliberately by Wagner itself, in seizing Bakhmut or you know reclaiming Bakhmut for Russian forces, and then quickly withdrew after that, um, claiming we seized Bakhmut, something other Russian troops couldn't do. And there's lots of reporting about Ukrainian military being happy to see Wagner leave because they were more comfortable dealing with Russian conventional military than Wagner. Although, again, anecdotal, so who knows exactly what the actual perspective is. It seems like a lot of the Wagner forces may not be available, at least in the near term, to do the sort of thing they've been doing. Certainly the recruiting network, the network that's been operationalizing it, as you noted, is going to be under strain for the next several months as it's the subject of this tug of war between Prigozhin and the Russian elements probably likely to co-opt it. Do we expect this to have an impact on the ground in Ukraine um, in terms of the counteroffensive? Like, is this a moment that Ukrainians can seize on to push harder or to have a higher caliber or highly like higher likelihood of success in these military operations? Or is it all kind of come out in the wash? You know, again, I would say it's it's a little too early to assess how it's going to play out on the battlefield. But it does seem like this is going to have some impact on Russia's offensive potential. Um, again, at, at the moment when they, you know, in the future revert to some sort of offensive action. Right now, they're primarily in defense mode, and they've got a lot of things working to their advantage. I mean, they spent the better part of the last year building, you know, layered fortifications that are proving, um, you know, very difficult for the Ukrainians to penetrate, and the Ukrainians understand that. So, you know, the the view I've heard from Kiev is this is, you know, Let's keep an eye out for opportunities, but we're not expecting anything magical to happen and the Russian front lines to suddenly collapse uh, because, again, they're very, very dug in. Um, and this is proving a huge challenge for Ukraine to kind of maneuver past. Well, sometimes we move from tragedy to farce. Uh, today, we're moving from farce to tragedy. So as Scott mentioned at the top of the show, uh, earlier this month, a, uh, a fishing trawler uh, on its way from uh, Libya uh, to Europe uh, with 750 migrants on board capsized off the coast of Greece. I think a little over 100 survivors uh, made it to Greece. 80-some-odd bodies have been recovered. Uh, at this point, the remaining hundreds uh, uh, of migrants that are missing are presumed to be drowned, uh, making this you know, one of the, the worst migrant disasters uh, in recent memory. You know, tragically, putting this in context, um, you know, this is only the latest in what is an ongoing humanitarian catastrophe. Um, nearly 2,000 migrants have already died this year. The death toll every year for you know, decades has been thousands and thousands of people trying to cross from you know, North Africa and the Middle East, uh, often from much farther. And you know, the, the first question I want to ask about this, and I know, Scott, you thought about this a little bit, is should we expect these sorts of you know, high-profile disasters um, at least high profile than usual. We'll talk later about uh, why this wasn't more high profile. But should we expect these sorts of higher profile disasters to change anything in terms of Europe's policy towards these migrants and, and refugees? And you know, I, I don't want to be you know parochial American, um, but it, it does strike me that this you know th this is kind of Europe's version of the problem we have here in the United States around uh, mass shootings. You know, it's a, it's a problem that continues to happen. It captures the news for a little bit every time it happens. It's a tragedy. People, you know, say all the the right things, um, but it just inevitably gets stuck in a much bigger and kind of intractable policy debate in the United States about guns, in Europe about migration. And so, you know, while, while I want to think that you know, the deaths of at this point it looks like five hundred people 
should move the needle in some way. I'm skeptical that that it will. So Scott, you know, do you share my skepticism here? So I do think there are signs that very big public incidents that really drive home the human costs of phenomena like this can galvanize action around certain types of change. I think it tends to be small bore and limited duration, um, but it's a cause for for some hope. Um, you know, the, I think the classic recent example is in, I think it was 2013 or so, maybe even a little earlier, um, there was a horrible case during the middle of the Syrian refugee crisis of the really stunning image of a two- to three-year-old Syrian child washed up on the shores of the Mediterranean having drowned um, and kind of tucked under himself um, the way that any parent knows children sleep. Uh, it's a heartbreaking image that I still you know, don't have trouble uh, recalling in great detail because of how searing it is, um, even more so, I think, once you, once you become a parent. Um, and it is – that actually there are – there's reason to believe that image and that phenomenon, similar human stories, but particularly that image more than anything else, did drive a response or a drive to come up with some sort of response among European leaders and global leaders. In that case, the response was, well, we want to find ways to cut back on dangerous migrant travel. Let's try and keep migrants in the Middle East in that case. We're going to pay to have Syrian refugees held in Turkey, held in Jordan. Uh, it's a partial solution. It's an imperfect solution. Um, the conditions in refugee camps in Jordan, in fact, were a contributor to some of the people seeking to emigrate uh, some of the Syrian refugees on this ship. Um, a phenomenal story in the Washington Post by Louisa Lovelock, who does – and some co-authors, but who, Louisa does wonderful work uh, in the region. We're going to document some of the human stories and the push factors that drove these people to take undertake such desperate action. And the leading one uh, – one of the leading ones was uh, a Syrian refugee whose child needed medical care. Um, with leukemia and was driven to try and alleviate their economic circumstances because the resources it, as a, as refugee were just so limited. Um, so it's not a permanent solution. There isn't a permanent solution. Um, and, and the effect of this in Europe, not entirely without parallel in the United States with its own uh, immigration debate and policies, has been a, a hardlining, right? Like we've seen a move to the political right in Europe over the last several decades in which immigration and uh, kind of underlying cultural concerns related to immigration um, play a driving role. That has been a little more on the wane maybe in the last few years, hopefully. At least we a lot of people hope it is. But we're still seeing, particularly in the Mediterranean, uh, a couple of these go- governments, including the current uh, government in, in Italy, riding a little bit on anti-immigration sentiment um, because they're experiencing these crises directly. And there's, I think, a fairly widespread um, perception that these the immigrants bring with them a lot of burdens on the economy. They become scapegoats for a lot of other broader social ills like the state of the global economy after the pandemic, which is still struggling in a lot of parts of the world. And, uh, and it becomes politically popular to – or politically unpopular to say we need to take on additional costs to help prevent these things from happening. But it's worth noting, you know, this is really fundamental to the European experience. I mean, European is a continent that experiences horrendous refugee conditions. Um, It was really the home of the Refugee Convention uh, and the whole drive to have better rights for people forced from their homes by a variety of conditions, war and and economic drives in various extents and various regards. And it's sad to see Europe drift so far from what is in the grand scale of things a pretty recent European experience of um, exile and dislocation um, and to lose that sense of empathy, which was kind of a defining principle for a long time um, in big parts of the world. 
Europe's not alone in that, though. And and the 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 real I think element thing thing that this drives home is just the extent to which people have been able to just begin to brush this whole system of problems under the rugs. Because while this is a particularly damning incident, it's not alone. Um, there have been lots of incidents of smaller scale but equally devastating that have happened within the Mediterranean, some of which have been even to some extent kind of tacitly facilitated by um, European governments um, and the callousness with which they treat some of these issues, not to mention North African governments on on the sending side. And, uh, you know, the international community largely has stood by while that system has developed. Um, and it's a really tragic uh, circumstance. Eric, I'm curious for your sense of how this, how the migrant crisis fits into Europe's sort of ongoing perception of its own security situation. Um, because I can see, you know, that there's a, if you're in a moment where you are, uh, if not at war, uh, very close to the edge of a war and supplying one side of a war that there's kind of an instinct to harden your borders, secure yourself. There's in 2021, 2022, I feel like the sort of conflict with the Russian sphere of influence sort of overlapped with the migrant crisis when Belarus began sort of shunting refugees from the Middle East um, across the Belarusian-Polish border um, in a very strange little interlude kind of using refugees as a way to punish the EU. Is there any overlap there? I mean, you've always had this debate in European security about, you know, the balance between threats that come from the East, namely Russia, and the sort of security situation in the South um, in terms of irregular migration and, and so on. And, you know, for a while there was certainly in the kind of early years of the war in Syria, um, you know, civil war in Libya, so on, there was a lot of push by the Southern European countries to have these issues come, you know, more at the forefront. And, you know, of course, there were a lot of internal debates within the EU and within NATO about how to deal with this, you know, with certain kind of more frontline governments wanting to take a harder line position. And then countries like Germany, saying, you know, we need to kind of open up our borders. And that sort of led to Merkel's famous, you know, pronouncement that, you know, we can do this and and let, um, you know, a million Syrian refugees come into Germany. So I think that obviously Russia's, you know, invasion of Ukraine last year pulled the security discussion firmly back towards the east and sort of conventional military threats. But this kind of event, you know, crystallizing event, like Scott was saying, it has the potential to, again, bring this debate back that hasn't really been kind of at the top of the European agenda over the past year and a half about how do we balance between, you know, the resources that we focus on, you know, defense and deterrence in the East against what we do in the South. And uh, again, the challenge is like, you know, conventional military threat of Russia, there's pretty unanimous agreement on sort of diagnosing that problem and coming up with solutions. But in this case, it's you know, it's highly polarizing. Um, and you have a variety of governments in Europe of different, you know, on different parts of the political spectrum, um, including some, you know, kind of extreme right governments that really want to take, you know, sort of an inhum- inhumane approach towards irregular migration. And that's the huge tension that certainly the EU kind of never really figured out how to, how to resolve. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I think we have to recognize uh, and be to some extent sympathetic uh, with some qualifiers there to, to the plight of European governments in this particular domain, um, setting aside the fact that they're often perhaps being a little more callous and insensitive about the human cost than we would like to see. Or a lot more callous in the case of Greece. Or a lot more callous often in the case of Greece. Though, 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 even, though even there, I think it's important to appreciate that like, you know, just just like, just, just like the border states in our country, right, it's, it's much easier for Northern European nations to complain about Greece when they don't themselves necessarily have to shoulder the full burden. So I'm sort of curious what, what they're, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I'm a little skeptical of, of when the Danes get, you know, deeply, deeply offended by this, given that I don't get a sense that they're desperately trying to liberalize immigration policy and send tons of money to Greece to help with this problem. I'm just saying there's a lot of, there's a lot of hypocrisy on all sides. I mean, yeah, like there's a level of moral luck here that Denmark doesn't have to worry about this, but at the same time, I also don't think it's acceptable for the Greek Coast Guard to just sort of sit on its hands and whistle while a bunch of people drown. Don't Bernard Williams me. Don't do it. <laughs> how, how dare what? you? How dare you, Quinta? <laughs> I mean, callousness aside, you know, this is a legitimate policy problem and it's facilitated by the fact that you really have a series of very weak governance issues in the southern side of the Mediterranean, right? Like this ship left from Libya. Libya is a state that's had perpetual political instability for the last 10 years at least, if not prior to that, but certainly for the last 10 years. There's no easy solution there. Governments have been trying, the UN has been trying, and there's not one clearly on the horizon. It's a little better now than it's been the last couple of years, but just by inches. Tunisia, a country that has been a bastion of stability for the last decade or so off and on, um, now facing increased domestic issues, domestic political, economic issues um, that might lead to uh, more difficulty coordinating, if nothing else, because of the kind of authoritarian turn in the government there is straining relationships with Europe. You don't have as many good partners on the other side. It's actually, you know, should, I think, make the United States appreciate the fact that at least to our southern border, while Certainly, the region directly south of the border has a lot of governance issues, and Mexico is now perhaps not the strongest state. It's still an effective state. It's a state that has resources and a partner we can deal with, and it's just one, uh, you know, setting aside Caribbean migration, things like that. You have partners where at least the biggest, you know, policy avenue that people are worried about, you have somebody you can deal with on the other side. That's not clearly the case here, certainly with Libya, at least, uh, and other North African states, you know, it's kind of on a spectrum, right? And Without that partner, what do you what do you do exactly? I mean, I, I think the right answer is like you have to say these people can land so that they're safe, and then we maybe say, okay, but we're not going to let you work. We're going to try and find ways to relocate. Then you can do things that are humanitarian, uh, respect humanitarian boundaries, but don't take on the externalities. Right? Um, and that's I'm not saying that's the right solution. I'm saying that's the like most restrictive solution you can have. That's not 
doesn't have major humanitarian costs. Um, but doing that, you have to accept that your own governance capacity is limited. Yeah, Greece is in a really difficult situation. It's hard to be an archipelago, right? It's hard to patrol all these islands with an open sea and say, oh, we have local authorities you can sort and take care of all these things. It's a huge, genuine policy problem that requires a lot of political will and a lot of resources to get even mediocre solutions on. And I honestly think that's the big driver here is that it's not that there aren't necessarily constituencies who would like to do something about this, who recognize the tragedy and, and are unhappy about it. It's that I, I'm not sure if they feel like they have a clear set of solutions that will make a big enough problem in comparison to the political cost it's going to take take them in the current political environment. Now, maybe public sentiment understood and surged much more in the direction of saying we've got to do something about these humanitarian costs. You know, that would fix things. But really – Barring that, it just seems like these are really expensive solutions you can deal with here. Well, how you really fix it is you resolve the sources of the immigration crisis. You you know trying to resolve the push factors. That means stabilizing Syria, trying to get make it so people can actually move back to Syria once it is stable, which is a big question for a lot of Syrians who fled the violence there. Um, dealing with massive economic problems in Pakistan, from whom a lot of these people came from. So it's just a, a huge systemic set of problems that there's no clear policy package that actually resolves the underlying issues, all you can do is try and mitigate some of the humanitarian costs. That's worth doing, but it's not a – I understand why it's a hard sell for some policymakers. So so last question on this before we, before we move to the next topic. You know, one thing that's been remarked upon quite a bit in the last few days is just the contrast between the level of coverage that this disaster received, which while non-zero was not enormous. I mean, when you have 500 – dead bodies floating in the Mediterranean. I mean, I don't mean to be morbid, but that's what we're looking at. Um, you know, you'd expect there to be a little more coverage than what we got. You compare that to the just absolute wall-to-wall coverage over the loss of the submersible that was exploring the Titanic. I think there were five or six people aboard, all of whom are presumed dead at this point. The contrast is quite stark. I, I, I do want to just preface this by saying the the loss of the Titanic submersible is a tragedy, and it's a horrible thing that those people died. And for all of the ghoulish whack jobs on Twitter who are cackling about, I don't know, rich people drowning, those are people too. And the whole thing is just, that's disgusting. Putting that an obvious moral point to aside, it is nevertheless striking how much more coverage this got than a disaster of literally two orders of magnitude more. Uh, that also is part of an ongoing enormous humanitarian disaster. So I, I don't know, the whole thing just fills me with despair about our media e- ecosystem. Um, Quinta, you're our, you're our media critic, you know, spleen, spleen out with me. Yeah. So I guess I have three points I would make here. So one is first, um, I want to point to a really interesting column by Ishan Tharoor in the Washington Post, who makes the point that um, two of the people who died in the Titan submersible were a father and son who were Pakistani, who were, I think the, the phrase he uses, uh, they're uh, heirs to one of Pakistan's biggest private fortunes. That's a quote. Um, and apparently there's been a lot of discussion within Pakistan and uh, on Pakistani social media about what the the contrast between you know this these billionaires um and then the hundreds of desperate pakistanis who drowned trying to reach greece says about that con- the state of that country's economy social inequality 
um, political problems. So I think that that to me is actually a more interesting comparison and, and way of moving those two things together than saying, you know, these are both situations where people died on boats for lack of a better way of, of phrasing it. Um, and I think that I will leave that to be discussed by people who know a lot more about the situation in Pakistan than I do having not read up on it. But I thought that um, Ishan's piece was interesting and thought provoking in ways that a lot of the sort of posts about, you know, why don't you care about migrants drowning? We're not. The second point I would make is that I don't think it's hugely surprising that people were interested in the submersible. People like stories about boat disasters. When I was a kid, I was really obsessed with uh, Ernest Shackleton and his misadventures in the Antarctic. so much about you. <laughs> hey, man, they all survived. You know, people like stories about Arctic disasters. People like stories about things that go wrong on boats. Uh, you may have heard of a little novel called Moby Dick. That is not particularly surprising to me. Also, people are obsessed with Titanic. So I don't I don't think that it's necessarily like something deeply wrong about the media environment or, you know, the human psyche these days that people were interested in what was going on with the submersible. I think that maybe people just like stories about stuff going wrong on boats. And the third point on the sort of question of the media environment is that, look, like if you booted up the Washington Post or the New York Times, there was coverage everywhere about the Titan submersible. Like, yes, that is completely true. You know why? Because people clicked on it. Like you could see there was a little bit of coverage and then there started being more and more coverage. And then it was absolutely everywhere. I think at one point I, I was reading an article in the Washington Post possibly about Titan because I'm part of the problem and like five out of the top 10 most read articles in the sidebar were all about the submersible. And I think what's important to keep in mind is that there is not like some giant untapped market of people who are desperate to read about migrant deaths in the Mediterranean. And that sucks, right? Like that is bad. There's a reason why a lot of that reporting is often uh, done from nonprofit organizations. It's funded through grants. It's, you know, really backbreaking work that does not get a huge social media boost because it's not something that people, you know, will go viral and that people will click on. And that, I think, is maybe cause for a little self-reflection with all of us about the nature of the media business and how it's important, I would argue, to have outlets and the sort of bandwidth for that kind of reporting that is sort of socially valuable but doesn't immediately generate a payoff for the outlet in the same way that the 500th story about, you know, the submersible's bad construction or what the Navy found or didn't find would would be. I also, as a counterfactual, I've been asking myself is I, I wonder how the submarine story would have been handled, frankly, if they had revealed from the outset that they believe the sub had imploded and they died. And it hadn't been framed as a multi-day search for people who there was still some hope might have been alive. I actually kind of think the dynamics are a little different. And a lot of the follow-on wash of pieces about the submarine and things like that are the kind of ripple that follows when you have a huge human pull where people got invested in the story and now they're it's in their minds and they want to wrap up parts of it. But I, I kind of suspect if it had 
imploded early on, it wouldn't have gotten nearly the immediate attention. That doesn't justify anything one way or the other. Um, but I do think it is a – there are actually different stories in that regard. Um, uh, maybe they shouldn't be. But but I, I, I that's just a different sort of media factor that is. Yeah, that's a good point. Plays in. But at the same time, I can understand why the Navy didn't want to say right away oh, yeah, they're yeah, dead yeah. in case it turns out that their, they were alive. Not, their job is not to shape the media narrative around these things. <laughs> right. but, um, but yeah. Well, speaking of ripple effects, we had a couple of big events take place at the Supreme Court uh, this week. As we near the end of this term uh, and the end of the uh, decisions coming out of this term, I should say, we're down to under 10 as of the time of our recording now, if I believe, maybe even under, I think just like four or five, six left, um, because we got three dropped uh, just a few days ago. Each of them is warrants some attention and warrants a little bit of discussion, but one is something that has gotten a ton of bandwidth in the media sphere, and that's Moore v. Harper, a case coming out of North Carolina um, that advanced a theory called the independent state legislator doctrine that we have discussed here on the podcast before that essentially would have super, supercharged state legislatures' ability to regulate state election rules or how states regulate federal elections, I should say, um, to the point that they would have been – Arguably, at least by the arguments being put forward by um, certain parties in this matter, not subject to judicial review or the same sort of judicial review one would normally expect by state courts. A lot of people thought this case was going to be rendered moot because the North Carolina Supreme Court actually flipped its position on this matter more or less since it was granted. Um, certainly, there appear that to have been grounds by which the Supreme Court could have said, oh, this is moot. We're not going to deal with this. But that's not what they did. They decided to go ahead and, in fact, reach a decision that was came out a little harder on independent state legislature doctrine than certainly a lot of people feared going into this matter, which has caused panic in various corners really since the court granted cert um, last year. So, Quinta, you wrote a useful piece on this in The Atlantic um, that kind of uh, tied together a lot of threads uh, in the reaction to this opinion. Tell us what you make of it and, and what we should be making of what this opinion means, kind of the future of this doctrine and the legal questions it raises. So, right. So as you say, Scott, I think there was a lot of anxiety around what the court would do here. Um, and I would describe the court's actions as pretty good, I guess. Um, now, it sort of depends what uh, lens you're looking at this through. I think uh, Michael Dorf at the, of the Dorf on Law blog described it as uh, good but not great. Um, Rick Hassan, the election law expert, um, wrote on the election law blog that it was bad but not awful. Um, so maybe it depends, you know, which side of the bed you you get out on. So what the court did essentially, I'm just going to focus on the majority opinion. The dissent from from Thomas is a sort of a separate kettle of fish. Was say that the most sort of muscular version of the independent state legislature theory was dead. Um, and this is a theory that would have said that state legislatures have independent, hence the name, um, authority through the electors and elections clauses in the Constitution to administer state elections for Congress and for presidential elections, essentially however they like, without any constraint from state constitutions or state courts. Um, and that is concerning because, especially in an environment where the Supreme Court has really limited federal uh, remedies uh, for things like, say, political gerrymandering or voting rights that could leave voters really vulnerable to chicanery by state legislatures. 
It also could have meant that bad actors, for lack of a better term, could have used this idea to try to kind of kick up dust um, in 2024. And so the theory goes from the folks who are most alarmed essentially use this to try to steal the election for Trump. I don't think that outcome was ever like it was never really in the cards that the court would endorse a version of the theory that would go that far. And the most extreme versions that were the most concerning were always a kind of a pretty huge stretch in a way that I don't know was always uh, reflected in the reporting on the matter. Um, But nevertheless, it's an extremely good thing that the court basically said, no, that door is resoundingly closed. It's also worth noting that Congress passed last year the Electoral Count Act reform, which sort of closes off another avenue for that those kinds of shenanigans. That's the not awful or the good part, depending on what view you take. The other half, so the the bad or the not great half, has to do with the sort of turn that the court takes in the, the last third or so of the majority opinion and in a concurrence by Justice Kavanaugh, where it essentially says, look, the most muscular version of this theory is just incorrect, but we are leaving the door open for potential federal court intervention if a state court just goes completely off the rails in interpreting something a state legislature has done when it comes to the administration of federal elections. And it's a bit odd. The court actually explicitly says, like, we are not giving you a standard. We're not even telling you if what the North Carolina Supreme Court did, which was what what was at issue here, whether that was okay or not. Um, Go with God, essentially. And Justice Kavanaugh in his concurrence says, look, Like you're saying that, but we all kind of know that what we're relying on is a concurrence by uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist in Bush v. Gore, which we can talk about more. How you interpret this, I think, varies a lot uh, depending on your view. Like I've said, uh, Rick Hassan has argued that it's going to open the door to a lot of just chaotic legislation and confusion um, that could be really damaging. The other way to look at it is that the court is kind of signaling, though it doesn't say it directly, that there's going to be a really high bar for those kinds of election disputes. And so it's, you know, leaving open the possibility to go out there and and take action if something is just completely upside down and backwards, but it probably won't. I've been talking for a really long time now, and I feel like I've barely scratched the surface, which is a a reflection of how incredibly complicated this case is. Yeah, but I think you've done a good job kind of tackling the main issues. Um, You know, one thing that's interesting that happens in the that last turn of the opinion is it actually cites Bush v. Gore for – well, I think Rick Hassan said this because I did not check this independently. But if somebody said this online, I think it was Rick, maybe not, if it wasn't, apologies, Um, for the first time uh, in at least – I think ever by the Supreme Court in a majority opinion, uh, necessarily a concurrence or dissent, because I can think of at least one or two uh, dissents where that's happened. Um, That's notable. That's interesting. And it is kind of like codifying that idea. But your evaluation of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing really is kind of like what your expectations were, right? This is a better outcome than if the court had dismissed this for as 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 moot, right? Because dismissed it as moot, all those old arguments could have still been up up there regarding more maximalist positions. I mean, it depends how much you you care about jurisdiction. But I mean, they could have the theory, the substantive theory would have been. Oh, totally. I just mean that their, their reason why it wasn't, it was ridiculous. Oh yeah. 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 I know. I fair. Yes. Whatever violence it may have done to jurisdictional (laughs) principles, which I haven't thought about enough, perhaps, uh, then that's fair enough. But from the perspective of somebody who's, you know, worried about 
independent state legislature doctrine. This is a better outcome than that, which I thought was the most likely outcome. And frankly, everyone was pretty happy when that became, after oral argument, a possibility and one that the justices seemed inclined to lean towards because it became very obvious during oral argument that, frankly, none of them were on board with the maximalist view. Um, even you know Justice Alito had a pretty skeptical line of questioning, as I recall, during oral argument, uh, although it's not as quite as skeptical in in, in uh, the opinion here. Uh, he's more just kind of quiet uh, as he only joins one part of one of the dissent. You know, it's, it is a better outcome, I think, than a lot of people were expecting in this case. Is it the perfect outcome? No. Is it, you know, the outcome you would want? Not necessarily. But, uh, you know, the, the window it leaves open of doing this review, it's worth noting, like, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, he couches it in terms of other constitutional rights. He's saying, like Bush v. Gore, it's equal protection issues, right? That's what Bush v. Gore kind of hung its hat on. You can dispute whether that is a reasonable reading of the Equal Protection Clause and what it requires. But they're saying where you butt the actions of a state court butt up against other federal rights. And then the question is like, well, what does the Elections Clause actually like require in terms of substantive rights? And yeah, that does have a little bit of a number there. But I'm also not sure we want to completely read the Election Clause as not having any federal rights, um, right? You know, so uh, that's why I'm not sure it's – I, I don't read it as highly problematic. It leaves a door open to things, but that's the nature of a of our legal system. Um, you know, you make narrow decisions and inevitably you leave doors open to things. Yeah, I, I, I agree with the point that you just made, Scott. I I I I understand why <laughs> I understand why, given that there is a six three conservative Supreme Court, a lot of liberal legal commentators are not happy that the court has left open the door to federal intervention. But I am highly, highly skeptical. That uh, if the composition of the federal courts were reversed, uh, those same commentators would not demand some degree of at least the possibility of federal judicial intervention for precisely the reasons that Scott articulates. I also, while I have seen some folks argue that, you know, Justices Sotomayor, Kagan and uh, and um, uh, Jackson you know, hated signing on to this part of the opinion, but they they did just so they, you know, could salvage the rest of it. I'm actually quite skeptical about that too. I suspect that uh, these, you know, liberal justices are justices first, which is to say they are very jealous of their judicial powers, just like all justices are, uh, and so would have insisted that there be some door open for federal judicial, for some sort of federal judicial role. Um, but the question, which I think you could have very correctly articulated, is well, how, how big of a role is that? Um, the answer is we don't know. My, my sense is that it will be interpreted more along the, hey, federal courts, you know, if you really feel like you need to, maybe there's an avenue here, but this is not an invitation for you to just mess around with state court judgments because you think they were not perfectly done. Uh, you know, then it is an invitation to do so. Uh, but you're right. We, we will have to see, which is always the case with hard to apply legal standards. The one thing I, I will say I think this court does, which is interesting and is a consistent trend with the Roberts court, is that it, it clearly is not shy about the court maintaining a substantive role and it's still leaving a lot of authority in the court's uh, pocket. It's it's not a, a non-interventionist court. It's not a court that's trying to say – as the kind of idealized, you know, Justice Scalia model would say, oh, we are removing ourselves and showing as much as we can back on the political branches and other institutions of government because we're unelected and so we're supposed to minimize our role. It, it's clear that Roberts and others here, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, I think a particularly interesting, particularly some of his rulings on standing and a couple other rulings said, like they're very comfortable saying, no, 
we think we have the, the, this has to be decided. The substantive area of law it has to be interpreted by us. And we're going to provide some guidance, but we're going to leave it to lower courts to develop it, and we're going to we're going to handle it later. And inevitably, there's going to be still a major ju- judicial role in this issue set. They're self-aggrandizing. They're empowering themselves. I don't necessarily love that, uh, but I also think it's maybe a uh, interesting corrective after what I, th- I I tend to be very skeptical of the Scalia-esque idea that the courts can play a very minimalist role or should try to. I often think that's a guise um, for a more substantive agenda um, that's being kind of underwritten. At least here, they're kind of embracing the fact that, no, courts still do have this role. We're not going to try and pretend otherwise, even among the conservative justices on the court. And that's kind of notable. Um, it's not – I don't think the direction we would have thought this people were going in when people were agitating for a more conservative, you know, non-interventionist court 20 years ago – this isn't the sort of court they thought they were going to get, but it's the one we've got, and it's with legal figures who grew up in that movement and are here and yet are not not embracing that sort of perspective. Now, of course, that was not the only Supreme Court decision that came down this day. Alan, tell us a little bit about Counterman. Yeah, so Counterman versus Colorado uh, is a case about the First Amendment. Um, it's not directly a case about lawfare matters, um, but it does have some interesting resonances and potential implications with the January 6th investigation, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, the, the main question in Counterman was, what does it mean for something to be a, quote, true threat and therefore unprotected by the First Amendment? Uh, so the First Amendment does not uh, apply to certain categories of speech. One of those categories is true threats, true threats of violence. So if I say, uh, I'm going to punch you in the nose, Scott, uh, that statement whether I punch you in the nose or not, that statement by itself is not protected by the First Amendment. And so the government is free to punish me for threatening you in this way. The question is, how explicit do I have to be with this violent threat for the government to punish me? If I say, Scott, I'm so mad at you. I, I'm mad at you to, enough to, to punch someone in the nose. And I look at you and I glare. The question is, you know, is something like that a true threat? Uh, and the answer is basically no, that's, 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 I mean, it's threatening, obviously, but, uh, it's probably not a truth. It, it's not quite explicit enough. Uh, but there are all these questions about what, what counts as a true threat. Uh, and so in this case, in Counterman, the question is whether or not the, the defendant's, um, set of, uh, harassing and violent-ish, uh, social media posts about a local musician rose to that level. And in particular, whether the fact that the posts appeared to reasonable observers, including the victim, as threatening, whether that was enough or whether the defendant also had to actually subjectively understand or intend to be making those threats. And and the court, um, in opinion by Justice Kagan, said, well, on the one hand, it's not enough just that the uh, an objective observer would have understood these to be threats because that would potentially bring uh, too much speech under this exception for true threats. On the other hand, we're not going to go so far and require that the defendant have actually intended to make a threat. It's enough that the defendant was merely reckless in the sense that the defendant understood that there was a high likelihood that their communication would be interpreted as a threat. And so there's that's the opinion by Justice Kagan. There's a concurrence by Justice Sotomayor uh, in which she would have required actual intent, not just recklessness. And there's a dissent by Justice Barrett in which she says, actually, none of this is necessary, just the uh, an objective test about whether or not a reasonable person would have interpreted this as a threat. Now, the reason that this is relevant for lawfare purposes is that uh, um, in the course of uh, these three opinions, each of them, interestingly, goes out of its way to contrast the true threats exception to the First Amendment with the incitement exception to the First Amendment. This is the famous Brandenburg test uh, in which um, speech that, uh, you know, is intended to and will 
you know, lead to imminent, likely violence or lawlessness, um, that speech is also unprotected by the First Amendment. And all of these justices, no matter where they fall down on the true threats uh, position, they say, well, look, uh, we all agree that this is different than the incitement exception, which definitely requires intent. It absolutely requires intent. And this is really interesting because although this is technically dicta, it's not relevant to the holding or not necessary to the holding of what a true threat is. It's about a different doctrinal issue. They're very explicit about it. And all three opinions, which collectively cover all the justices, are explicit about it. So I think we can take it as a strong signal that this is what the law is uh, on incitement. And that's important because um, the incitement cases from the Supreme Court, they're quite old. They're quite short. There are a couple, two of them are procuriums. They don't actually tell us a ton. And this has profound bearing or potentially profound bearing on the investigation into January 6th. And in particular, the investigation uh, that uh, I assume the special counsel is at least considering about whether or not uh, Donald Trump is guilty of incitement, of inciting the riot, uh, incitement to insurrection uh, by getting on stage and telling his supporters at the stop the steal speech to quote, fight like hell, and then doing other things like ordering the magnetometers to be removed. And the reason I think this is important is because the Supreme Court has clarified what at least I took to be a some a still a kind of an open question until you know the opinion came out, which was for incitement is recklessness and especially kind of extreme recklessness is that sufficient, or do you actually need to establish intent? And I think after Counterman, there's no question you have to establish intent, uh, and that does make it I think at least on some margin harder to bring a case against Donald Trump for January sixth, uh, specifically for incitement, uh, because. Uh, now it's not enough for the government to establish that Trump understood the risk of violence and therefore was at the very least reckless. Now they have to prove that Trump specifically wanted the crowd to go and attack the Capitol. And although they might still be able to prove that, to be clear, um, that's always harder to do in the absence of smoking gun evidence like Trump turning to Cassidy Hutchinson and saying, I'm really hoping they go attack the Capitol. Which, to be clear, we do not have. Which we do not have, which we do not have. Um, and, and probably won't get, though, who knows. And so, you know, I wrote a piece about this for, for, for Lawfare, which, which, which we'll link to. Again, I'm, I'm not trying to claim that this is, you know, one way or another dispositive of whether or not Jack Smith is going to bring an incitement uh, prosecution against Trump. But I, I do think it does make it at least somewhat less likely that this will happen. Um, and I think it's also just interesting that the Supreme Court was so explicit about this. You know, I'm not implying that they were like consciously back channeling to Jack Smith and trying to, you know, tell him, hey, if you bring an incitement prosecution, this is what we expect. But just this level of everyone talking about the same unnecessary dicta so explicitly <laughs> um, in an opinion does make me wonder if in the back of their minds, I mean, the justices are people like the rest of us. They read the papers too. Do they want to use this as an opportunity just to clarify, you know, incitement's an interesting, important issue in contemporary legal life. And uh, maybe it's worth us just throwing out some stuff there, uh, just in case anyone's listening, just so that there are no questions about what it is that the First Amendment uh, requires. Well, folks, we are out of time for this week's episode, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. I am going to take the prerogative of doing our first object lesson because I have a very big announcement which should be of interest to all Lawfare listeners and other, others who read or follow Lawfare in any regards, of which, of course, Rational Security is a product. We have a brand new website and a brand new domain name to go with it. Um, so you can still go to the same old lawfareblog.com. That is going to redirect you to our new website. But our new website is lawfaremedia.org. 
a name that reflects what we like to think we have become, which is decidedly not a blog anymore, but really a platform for written content, audio content, visual content. We're experimenting with a little bit, still kind of work in progress there. Uh, in a variety of guards, once we get rid of those dog shirts, will help a lot. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is a, a phenomenal new product. It's been a long time in coming, something we've worked on a ton. Lots of new functionality, lots of new flexibility. We're still ironing out the kinks. We're still perfecting exactly how we want it to look and work. Um, but we wanted to get it out there in the public um, to get feedback and to let people benefit from some of the stuff we've already implemented. And this is actually really just the beginning. We have lots of lots of exciting new functionality coming down the pike. So visit lawfaremedia.org, see our new website, read all about it, try our new search engine, try printing something in PDF format. It actually looks good and it's legible, unlike previously, and it has the author's names and bios in there. Um, it's got lots of cool functions uh, and, again, more and more to come in the weeks and months to come. And perhaps most importantly, you can listen to Rational Security from the website now. Uh, although, you know, keep subscribing wherever you subscribe because we want those subscribers. Listeners, I also just want to shout out Scott because Scott did such a huge amount of work uh, internally in shepherding us through this more than year long process to get a new website. And I'm just curious, Scott, how 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 many months, how much therapy do you think it'll take for you to process the the trauma that you, you know, there, there was a stage in life where I thought I actually might go into computer engineering uh, and doing web design way and back now you're glad in the you aughts didn't. when that was a cool high tech thing to do. And I'm so glad I didn't, <laughs> to say it the very least. One other thing I will mention before I hand off the baton is that we also are getting a new Twitter handle, which I think will be up and running. Uh, you should still be able to reach us at all the same old places, but we will just be at Lawfare moving forward, not at Lawfare blog. Uh, as we ditch the blog from our name. So look for us on Twitter at, at Lawfare and at the various other social media platforms that we now inhabit as Twitter slowly gives in to the inevitable. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So I, I have a great book, but I, I just I wanna I wanna say, you know, we are we have grown up, we are we are no longer a blog, but I just wanna say we're gonna keep some of that blog energy. I mean, I think that is part of our charm, just the uh, not slight, slight lack of professionalism. Uh, you know, at least rats at rat sack. How about this? How about r all that blog energy? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just move channel to, it to into rational security. I can yeah. live with that. Um, so my object lesson is a fabulous book that I am uh, halfway through, but my wife has also read and she assures me that I can recommend it with a clear conscience because uh, as good as it is now, it gets even better. It's called The Mountain in the Sea by uh, Ray Naylor. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, I was bummed to discover that it is apparently the New York Times's like book of the week selection, which, you know, I just want to say I discovered it first. Uh, it is about uh, it's about octopuses that can communicate in the future. I don't think I need to say anything more. It's just amazing. It's about talking octopuses. Yeah. I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah, you should read it. It's really good. Quinto, what do you have for us this week? Well, I'm now Googling that book, which sounds super interesting. Um, I am recommending a novel as well um, from 2017 by Masin Hamid called Exit West, which I was reminded of by our discussion of the refugee crisis. It's a pretty short book. I think I read it in one or two sittings. Um, it is just a really moving, thought-provoking novel about what it means to cross a border um, and sort of the concept of borders more generally with a, a hint of magical realism that makes that sort of thinky stuff go down a little bit easier. So highly recommended. And Eric, how about you? What, did you, what have you brought to the table? Sure. Well, <clears throat> I will recommend for the musically inclined of our listeners uh, a new musical group that I discovered Um Saw in concert a couple of weeks ago a group of 
Tuareg rebels from Mali uh, who have pioneered the genre of desert blues. And, Tenarwin. Uh, Tenarwin, absolutely. They're really yes. fantastic. I actually mentioned them on the well, podcast a couple of weeks ago. Okay, I well, them. there you They're go. Phenomenal. They I are phenomenal. I highly, highly recommend. They're amazing. Yes. Um, that's phenomenal. I didn't realize. Were they, were they in D.C.? Yeah, they were on the Logan Theater. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I am, like, super bummed I missed this. I'm usually very on top of what concerts are in town. Um, now I feel absolutely silly. Uh, they're phenomenal. I've listened to their stuff for – they've been around forever now, like have. decades. And they do amazing, amazing stuff. That's so cool. They're apparently on their world tour, so perhaps you can catch them in Sweden. I might, you know, I might Sweden find another city, yeah. Is, is, is there an album that either of you recommend to start with? I, the one I have is, I think, self-titled is the only one I can think of. I have a – I downloaded it off of a probably not Apple, but some some server years ago. So I have a bunch of random tracks, but I can't think of the specific album. But definitely worth checking out. It's like psychedelic rock, basically. It's like very, very awesome with like heavy percussion, mostly instrumentalists, because there's got like supposedly like 20 or 30 members, right? Oh, great recommendation. Phenomenal. Um, very cool. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit our new webpage at lawfaremedia.org. I have to change my script for this. Uh, I'm going to say it wrong a couple times. For our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and at Lawfare, soon to be. Uh, and be sure to leave a rating review wherever you might be listening. Also, be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell, behalf of my co-host Alan Quinta, and our special guest, Eric Jarmella. I am Scott R. Anderson. We will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.